The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The stakes are increasing in the U.S. and China tariff poker game, and California's farmers are more at risk. Which commodities are facing higher costs that might be shipped to China? We have that report. Central Valley farm workers are still a target of immigration authorities, even those without criminal records. We take a snowshoe stroll into the Sierra. We're going to measure the latest water content numbers of the snowpack. Which pests threaten California's walnut orchards? And what can growers do to protect their trees? We have the details. We have all that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Well, you may remember in last week's program, we talked about the probability that China may impose tariffs on California agriculture, in fact, agriculture from throughout the United States. We just didn't know when there might be a date of enforcement for those Chinese tariffs. Well, it happened. Effective date last Monday, April 2nd. In response to President Trump's announced 25% tariff on steel imports and 10% tariff on aluminum imports, the Chinese retaliated talking about a hefty tariff, 15 to 25 percent, on U.S. agricultural products that are exported to China from California. And that includes 23 percent of all California cherries, 10 percent of lemons, pistachio, almonds, and wine. 90 percent of the wine exported to China comes from California. And the stakes to agriculture keep on rising in this tariff dispute. In response to President Trump's announced possible tariffs on technology products, China aimed a direct strike at America's heartland, moving to slap an aggressive 25% retaliatory tariff against U.S. soybeans, which is farm country's most valuable export to China, worth something like $12 billion. Here's the USDA's Gary Crawford with more. Some farm groups are expressing a lot of worry about China's announcement this week of new tariffs on things like U.S. fruits, vegetables, pork, and ethanol. And after an appearance at Michigan State University Tuesday, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters that in order to protect farmers... Action will be taken here. We're not going to let farmers be sacrificed on trade wars. But when reporters asked what actions are being discussed... I'm not at liberty to talk about those kind of things. He said that in situations like the one with China... You can't uh, necessarily proclaim ahead of time uh, what your measures are, and that's why I'm being very cautious today in telling you about uh, the things that are being contemplated, but the discussions and, and being made about what's the best way to respond. He did say the response will send a message to China that it will not be able to change U.S. trade policies. By virtue of their holding agricultural hostage. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the American Farm Bureau Federation points out that with China buying nearly $20 billion in U.S. ag products annually, the tariffs present an almost certain decrease in farm exports to China. China has enacted a 25% tariff on U.S. pork and a 15% tariff on other agricultural products, including tree nuts, fruits, and wine. With China buying nearly $20 billion in U.S. agricultural products annually, the tariffs present an almost certain decrease in farm exports to China. Dave Salmonson. American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Director of Congressional Relations says the effects of the tariffs will be seen soon. We'll probably know fairly quickly what impact that's having on sales and the buying patterns in China. We could see down the line some impacts if they can't find other homes for those products. If some of them have to be here on the domestic market, you'd expect that you'd see some decreases of prices to producers. Salmonson says another tariff announcement coming this week could trigger
trigger more retaliation from China on U.S. agriculture. The president has announced there'll be some new tariffs proposed on up to $60 billion worth of Chinese product imports. This comes from a different part of trade law and a different issue dealing with how they treat our intellectual property. This wouldn't take effect probably for another two months, but you may expect some retaliatory moves from China related to that. However, Salmonson points out that if the trade issue regarding steel and aluminum can be resolved, U.S. agriculture would benefit. We've been through this in the past. Over time, usually things get worked out. And here, the background policy that started all this is a lot of overcapacity of steel production in the world, a lot of that related to Chinese production, and that's a process that needs to be addressed. So hopefully that can be worked out and U.S. ag products won't be facing these retaliatory tariffs for very long. Michael Clements, Washington. Rod Bain of the USDA reports that the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, wants to reassure farmers in America they'll be protected from any tariffs. How will the Trump administration, and by extension the U.S. Department of Agriculture, support the farm sector in the face of potential retaliatory tariffs by China? On the phone with the president last night, he wanted me to assure the farmers and producers of America that they will not be allowed to be the casualty in these trade disputes. He will support them every step of the way. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue talking with reporters in Ohio Wednesday. Earlier in the day, the Chinese government announced the addition of potential U.S. exports to a list of goods that could face tariff increases, including soybeans, a counter to recent announcements of U.S. measures against certain trade practices by China. Secretary Perdue acknowledges legitimate anxiety among many in agriculture about China's recent tariff announcements, but reiterated. These are announcements. we got 30 to 60 days for negotiation to do that. They're not going to take effect. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. However, this is the same Secretary of Agriculture who told Central Valley farmers in February... ICE are not after the people out here working on our farms. I know there's an anxiety there. The president made it very clear. He wants the criminal element of illegal aliens out of this country, and that's what ICE is doing. And I think we know how that turned out. The L.A. Times reports that the United Farm Workers of America have identified at least 26 farm workers that have been arrested in Kern, Tulare, and Madera counties. Most of them stopped before dawn on their way to work. The arrests were part of a larger sweep that is continuing in California's agricultural heartland. It's sending fear throughout the Central Valley, where for generations, immigrants here, both legally and illegally, have been picking the crops. In some fields, almost all the foreign workers are in the country without legal status. The recent sweeps have been particularly concerning because they include the arrests of people not specifically targeted by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, also known as ICE. Farmers fear more sweeps will drive away labor at a time when some are struggling to get enough workers to pick the crops. Farmers have struggled in recent years with labor shortages. A summer 2017 survey by the California Farm Bureau Federation showed that 55% of responding farmers experienced shortages with problems most acute among those whose crops require intensive hand labor, such as tree fruits and grapes. USDA keeps track of plenty of useful ag statistics, but what if you want to know more about ag producer sentiment? For the last two years, Purdue University has partnered with the CME Group, and we 
we've come together to put together a, a great product, the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. This is a monthly measure of producer sentiment based on a survey of 400 producers from across the country. That was Purdue University Ag Economist David Widmar. And we share these results as long with information or survey questions about key farm economy driver expectations that producers have. And we help report what producers are facing and what they're thinking about for their operations and the broad ag economy. The barometer complements USDA's statistics. The USDA is providing very qualitative, concrete measures, and usually of historic measures. So net farm income from last year or the average price of corn received for last year. These are very quantitative results. This is more of a qualitative. It's more of how are producers feeling. One important target audience for the barometer is ag producers themselves. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in what's going on on their operation or what's going on in their region of the country. This provides a, a national level measure. So how is the health of the farm economy? How has it changed perceptions of that? He says producers also are asked about their expectations and management practices. Do producers expect commodity prices to go up? Do they expect them to go lower? This, again, is another benchmarking activity for producers. We also ask if they plan on adjusting their management strategies, maybe lowering fertilizer rates or lowering seeding rates. Again, another opportunity for producers to benchmark their farm plans with farm plans of others across the country. In the latest monthly report, the Ag Economy Barometer dropped in December for the second month in a row, which reflects increasing pessimism about the future. The latest number, 126, is a benchmark figure. It is slightly lower than the month before, but Widmar points out that it is still higher than a year ago. And we've been around 130, 139 points throughout the 2017 growing season. And that's an improvement from a year ago where we had about a sentiment score of 100. Ag producers aren't the only ones who would find this information interesting. Other stakeholders include ag input suppliers, ag manufacturers, thinking about how they approach their marketplace and how they can help their customers. He says policymakers also may find the information useful. They see this is a valuable insight to help them craft and design policies and programs to help producers in this downturn. Of course, with the Farm Bill negotiations uh, upcoming for the new Farm Bill, this is a likely uh, an important source for those who are working to craft a Farm Bill. He says the barometer does not aim to provide what he describes as a rich data set, but instead provides a quick look at what producers are expecting now and for the near future. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. April marks the return of the California Crop Report, and here's what's happening. Winter forage crops were maturing well. Some silage harvesting began. Alfalfa swathing was reported in the San Joaquin Valley. Cotton field preparation is ongoing. Wheat development was benefiting from the precipitation in March. Irrigation continues in vineyards and stone fruit orchards. Cherries are in full bloom. Peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots, and prunes are leafing out. Fruit was forming on most stone fruit trees. The grapes are leafing out. Apples and pears were leafing out and beginning to bloom. Olives continue to be pruned. Blooms continue to emerge on citrus trees. Navel oranges and lemons continue to be harvested. The Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. The almond bloom is complete. Trees are leafing out. Nutlets were forming. Walnuts were pushing catkins and were treated for blight. The pistachio bloom is increasing. Fields are being prepped and planted, but activities have been slow due to wet soils for vegetable crops. Winter vegetables were getting ready for harvest. The harvest of broccoli, cauliflower, and some lettuces began in Salinas. The strawberry harvest has begun in Monterey. Good news for livestock, rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality continues to improve with the recent precipitation and warming temperatures. Sheep are grazing on idle cropland, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. 
Beehives continue to be moved from almond to stone fruit orchards, and the bee activity picked up with the favorable weather. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Well, let's take another walk with Frank. That would be Frank Gerke, Director of Snow Surveys for the Department of Water Resources, and he took his final winter stroll in the Sierra at Echo Summit to measure the snowpack, and this is what he found. We are at the Phillips Snow Course for the April 1 snow surveys measurement. We had a depth of snow here of 32.1 inches. The important measurement, the water content, 12.4 inches, representing 49% of its long-term average this location this time of year. Clearly, while we had a, a good march, it was not adequate to get us up to a, a really good outlook with respect to the water supply. A pretty respectable increase in snow water equivalent uh, over the Sierra. At this location, we gained about 11 inches of snow water content from Feb 28 to today. So a good march, but certainly not a great march, and by no means even close to the uh, March miracle of 1991, when we uniformly had snow water increases of 20 plus inches. So an increase, but still really got to emphasize that it's an improvement, but still need to maintain, you know, water supplies are, are at a, you know, potentially we're living off of our savings from last year. So we've got to be very prudent in our water use. There is the forecasted event coming in towards the end of this week. However, that is likely to be a warm event. So most of that uh, precipitation is going to immediately run off and end up in the reservoirs and then be released on downstream. As Frank Gerke pointed out, we are living on last year's rain. Shasta and Folsom are above average for this time of year. Folsom Lake at 129% of average. Shasta, the state's largest reservoir, is at 105%. The only large reservoir in California that's significantly below average is Oroville Lake, the state's second largest reservoir. And it's being kept deliberately at only 60% full. That's about a quarter less than it normally would have this time of year in order to avoid using the lake's new spillway. Walking along with Frank Gerke up there at Echo Summit was Carla Namath, Director of Department of Water Resources. She said that conservation is still the word of the day. We've got one word for all Californians and that's conserve. Um, we all know how dynamic our system is. Um, we need to invest so that uh, into the future as our snowpack declines over time. We have the ability to store it and move it to where it's needed in California. But that means we need every Californian to conserve. It is a new way of life. Uh, and uh, just this beautiful sunshine out here, I think, proves that point. Still, the March rainfall for Sacramento was a major boost in local precipitation. 5.3 inches of rain fell in the capital city. An average March, about three inches. So yes, infrastructure and partnerships will be vital ingredients in establishing and building up the nation's rural e-connectivity. That according to the assistant to the Secretary for Rural Development, Ann Hazlett. But a third and important component in this effort is 
innovation, and not just from the technology perspective. We believe that the challenges in rural America are complex. They are constantly evolving, as are the opportunities. Rural communities need a forward-focused agency that is able to come alongside local leaders and to support them with new and fresh solutions. So to that end, USDA last fall formed a Rural Development Innovation Center. Here we have a team that is really designed to hardwire innovation into USDA's program delivery with a mission to assist rural communities in addressing these new challenges and embracing opportunities. This is a team that's working directly with our agency administrators as well as state directors. They will be focused on crucial activities such as capacity building, data and trend analysis, and best practice identification and implementation all to assist our rural customer. And that also means opportunities in the telecom sector, including rural broadband. Whether it is identification of best practices at the state level or helping our program managers with data to improve the effectiveness of our existing programs. Hazlett adds innovation will be crucial in the deployment of e-connectivity across rural America. In some communities, this may mean looking at new partnerships that come together to connect a region that is unserved or particularly underserved because there is a business case to support doing something in a new way. Maybe this is a new relationship, a new partnership between a telecom company and an electric cooperative or a municipality. An example of such an innovative partnership comes from Hazlett's home state of Indiana. In a company called Nine Star Connect, where a local telco and a local utility merged and now provide power and broadband services to those communities. Similarly, organizations like the NTCA, Rural Broadband Association, are proactive in this regard with a website soliciting partnerships. Which matches potential partners with telecommunications companies to deliver services where there is a substantial need. We are committed to supporting these types of efforts and activity and innovation moving forward. Innovation, according to the assistant to the secretary, also means streamlining, whether it's rural development programs or broadband regulations, whatever is needed to remove barriers and facilitate increased innovation and creativity to make rural e-connectivity happen. In the area of broadband deployment, we believe there are specific improvements that can be made to our own programs within USDA, making them easier to use for applicants and more effective in what they deliver into communities. A broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has published a final decision to establish a federal milk marketing order in California. The proposed FMMO would incorporate the entire state. The USDA is conducting a referendum among California's dairy producers to determine whether they support the proposed federal milk marketing order. The referendum will be held through May 5th. The USDA is mailing ballot materials to all known eligible dairy producers supplying milk to the proposed marketing area. The FMMO would become effective if approved by two-thirds of the voting producers or by producers of two-thirds of the milk represented in the voting process. Federal milk marketing orders are legal instruments that regulate the sale of milk between dairy farmers and the first buyer. The proposed order would recognize the unique market structure of the California dairy industry through tailored performance-based standards, and that determines eligibility for pool participation. The proposed order provides for the recognition of producer quota as administered by the California Department of Food and Agriculture. California represents over 18% of all U.S. milk production and is currently regulated by a state milk marketing order that's administered by the CDFA.
The Department of Agriculture announced it would withdraw the organic livestock and poultry practices rule. The move, applauded by the American Farm Bureau Federation, means organic livestock producers will not be subject to more regulation. AFBF Public Policy Executive Director Del Moore says that if implemented, the rule would have been very costly for organic farmers and ranchers who raise cows, chickens, and other livestock. We felt it went way beyond the intent. Certainly the law that was laid back in 1990 as part of the Farm Bill, had the rule gone into effect, we believe it would have forced a number of organic farmers and ranchers to just basically change their production practices, and it likely would have forced many of them either out of the organic sector, if not out of business. Not only did the rule go beyond Congress's intent, but organic livestock farmers and ranchers are already following an adequate set of rules. Secretary Purdue and Undersecretary Greg Ibach have both made the point that existing robust organic livestock regulations are effective doesn't mean that they can't take a look at some changes, but we strongly believe that the Secretary's action, the Undersecretary's action, kept these rules inside the law. Moore says the USDA decision shows a commitment to organic farming. We believe that this is also a signal that they're looking at this organic process as being something that they take very seriously and will be working to ensure it's a label that consumers can count on and the rules and the process will be transparent so that producers who've invested a lot of time and resources and certainly their own capital to make their operations meet these standards pay off the end of the day. Michael Clements, Washington. Well, it's coming up to the time in walnut orchards throughout the state that bugs are starting to appear, the bad bugs, the aphids, the mealy bugs, scale, white flies. What is a walnut grower to do? We're talking with Chuck Gullard. He is the Central Valley representative for Bear Crop Science. And Chuck, spring and bugs just get along so well with all that lush new growth, don't they? Oh, they do. They do indeed. What then are the pests that you're seeing that are hitting the walnuts and, and what are some control strategies for them? Primarily, this time of year, we're starting to look at um, walnut scale and nematode in walnuts and nematodes in you know all tree nuts and grapes. And Movento is one of our premier tools for control of mealybug in grape and also suppression of scale and nematode in tree nuts and grapes. So Movento is the product that we'll probably be talking about today. Talk about the pests that are controlled by Movento and the pests that are suppressed by Movento. The suppression primarily is talking about holding back the populations to fairly acceptable levels. It means that it doesn't come, you know, completely control. And in grapes, we're talking about nematodes. In walnuts, we're talking about nematodes. Also some mites and, and some scales. So scales and mites and nematodes primarily are suppressed by Movento in uh, grape and walnut and other tree nuts. Um, when we talk about control, again, we're, in grapes, we're talking about mealybugs and in, in uh, tree nuts and walnuts specifically, aphids, uh, mealybug, um, walnut scale, and whitefly. As you go out among the fields and talk with the growers, what are some of the problems they are facing right now? What are the big pest problems in your area? Uh, where we have sandy soils, nematodes seem to be a big issue. You know, really big in almonds, walnuts, and, and, and grapes. And usually we don't worry about them until we start getting the canopy on, on, the, on, the, on the plant. So like in grapes, that would be, we'd be looking for something like 18 to 24 inch of new growth. So... The primary goal there is to get leaf surface. 
Movento is metabolized in the plant, and in order for it to be metabolized in the plant, it has to get into the cuticle layer of the leaf. And so, therefore, we have to have canopy. We have to have leaf surface in order for Movento to work. The plant metabolizes the product, and it's the metabolite that moves, you know, out in the xylem and down in the phloem. So it's got two activity, two two modes or two motions of activity. It moves up in the plant and out down in the plant, and that's how we get suppression of nematode and then control of uh, mealybug in in grape. Now, what about the effect on uh, beneficial insects? Is there any? According to studies, the beneficial uh, insects are not affected because of the way they feed. They do not feed on the plant tissues the way the pests do. What are some of the uh, cautions one should take with Mavento? What is the pre-harvest interval and the um, minimum interval between applications? For, for grapes, uh, you have rate ranges of 6 to 8 ounces per application. You're allowed 12.5 fluid ounces per year. So the minimum interval between applications are 30 days, and the pre-harvest interval is seven days. In tree nuts, it's a little bit different. We have a little higher rate range. It's six to nine ounces per application for a total of 21 and a half fluid ounces per 12-month period. Minimum interval between applications there are 14 days, and pre-harvest interval on tree nuts is seven days. And I would think that it would be a heavy infestation that would require that second application. It's up to the PCA and the and the grower where they have lighter applications. It's pretty common to go with one application of of um, of Movento, but where you have heavy infestations or high high populations of nematodes or mealybug, it's not atypical to see two applications. Is it important not to apply Movento until after petal fall? Well, typically you want to have a full canopy and. You know, I mean, we miss the the petal fall by the time we get to full canopy. So the best strategy is wait for that full canopy, as you explained earlier, to apply Movento. My my typical recommendation is somewhere between 70 and 80 percent canopy before you go in. You want to have a lot of good um, leaf tissue. You know, the recommendations are pretty general, but they may be different timing. So like for down here in the Central Valley, we're, you know, we're quite a bit early. We're doing our, our, our PCA meetings now, but... Typically, Movento on Trinus would be going out in, you know, mid to late May and early June, probably a little quicker further south and maybe a little later further north. Is there a limit to how much Movento you can apply? Does it need to be um, alternated with another frac number? Typically, we like it. We like to look at, you know, IPM recommendations. And so just by default, we like to see rotation of chemistries. Um, for example, in grapes, we like to see a... Um, soil application of admire earlier and then come back like 30 days or so later with the movento so you have two modes of action working on on the pest so we we are strong supporters of the ipm program and you know the movento usually if we say 30 days apart i think we're okay as far as um the pest that we're looking at um resistance management um, isn't quite as big an issue with that, and um, typically there is some type of other application in between those. One of the things that I would recommend, though, um, and it's really necessary, I should say, is that um, an addition of a, a spreading, penetrating adjuvant is required in order for this uh, product to get into the leaf cuticles for that to met- metabolism to work. Are there temperature restrictions on application of Movento? Not typically. Um, typically, if we've got pests in the field, we're, you know, 
especially in the spring timing. We're not going to be applying it till it's, you know, warm. Uh, we don't see any problems with cool temperatures simply because of the time of season. Most of the time, I don't know that there's um, any defined restriction on heat, but typically we're not out there, you know, when it's above 95 or 100 degrees. And how important is application followed by a period of dry weather? Usually we say rain fast or two hours. So if it's going to rain within two hours, you don't want to apply it. I would say that, you know, when, when, when looking at two applications to Movento, whether it's in grapes or in trees, you might want to consider um, the second application either 30 days later or even a fall application post-harvest before the um, tree begins to become dormant when the leaves are still still good and green and good condition. Um, so therefore, you'll have, you know, additional protection against mealybug late season and nematode suppression late season. And coming into the spring, you'll have less pressure. So it's either, you know, within 30 days or so, or outside of 30, depending on if you're on grapes or, or tree nuts, or, you know, maybe a post-harvest application would be desired. All right. It's all about Movento from Bear Crop Science, a systemic foliar insecticide that offers growers a highly effective tool for managing a broad range of nematodes and sucking insect pests on such key crops as tree nuts, grapes, potatoes, citrus, leafy vegetables. Movento provides excellent long-term control of a broad range of sucking pests, including aphids, whiteflies, various species of scale, mealybugs, and psyllids. We've been talking with Chuck Gullard. Chuck is the Central Valley representative for Bear Crop Science. And Chuck, thanks for a few minutes of your time. You are so welcome. Thank you for the time. If the kids are going to college to study science, you might just sort of point them towards agricultural science. A study issued Tuesday points to gaps in training students for careers in agricultural science. The National 4-H Council and Bear Crop Science surveyed teachers and parents. Most respondents said they consider agricultural science important, but many high school science teachers said they don't feel qualified to teach agricultural science. An earlier federal study showed demand from agricultural science employers greatly outweighs the number of qualified graduates available. Congratulations are in order to Rachel Searles. She's the UC Cooperative Extension Sustainable Food Systems Advisor for Los Angeles County. She's this year's recipient of the Eric Bradford and Charlie Rominger Agricultural Sustainability Leadership Award. Searles has been committed to community gardens, school gardens, and urban agriculture since long before our cities took notice. For 30 years, she's worked at the UC Cooperative Extension office in L.A. County, helping to bring city-grown food into the mainstream. The Bradford Rominger Award, given yearly, honors individuals who exhibit the leadership, work ethic, and integrity epitomized by the late Eric Bradford, a livestock geneticist who gave 50 years of service to UC Davis, and the late Charlie Rominger, a fifth-generation Yolo County farmer and land preservationist. And Searles is also a noted author. In 2016, she wrote a book detailing the history of farming in Los Angeles County. A hundred years ago, if you lived back east and you were thinking of traveling to California's wine country, where would you go? Napa? Nope. Lodi? Mm-mm. You would go to Hollywood. That's right. You would go to Los Angeles County. Did you know that back in 1910, Los Angeles County was not only the number one farm county in the state of California, it was the number one farm county in the nation. 8,000 farms in Los Angeles County. It was the state's top producer of a various array of crops. 
Citrus, of course, like lemons, but walnuts too, and strawberries, tomatoes, hay, and a lot more. Well, what happened? Where are the farms in Los Angeles County? What's going on down there? Why, why did they disappear? We're talking with Rachel Searles. She is the co-author, along with Judith Gerver, of a fabulous new book called From Cows to Concrete, The Rise and Fall of Farming in Los Angeles. And Rachel works at the Cooperative Extension Office in Los Angeles County. Uh, she's been there as a sustainable food systems advisor for Cooperative Extension. She's also involved with school gardens, community gardens, urban agriculture, all around Los Angeles. Rachel, it's a pleasure talking with you. And I guess uh, we should start off with, uh, well, what's left of ag in Los Angeles County? Thank you for having me on the show, Fred. Um, actually, there's more agriculture in Los Angeles County than people realize, but it's often not seen. It's sort of invisible to many of us here in Los Angeles because it's up in the high desert around the cities of Lancaster and Palmdale. So um, we grow a surprising amount of carrots in Los Angeles County. If you look at the 2012 Ag Census, you will see that I think we're the number four county in the U.S. in terms of carrot production, which always surprises people. Those little baby carrots you grow at the grocery store may come, you buy at the grocery store may come from Los Angeles County farms. We also have alfalfa and peaches and pick your own cherries and nursery crops. People are going to love looking at all the pictures and illustrations in this book, From Cows to Concrete, The Rise and Fall of Farming in Los Angeles. When you open the book, there's a picture that I think goes back to about 1929 that shows a verdant field of row crops. It looks like it's nestled against the Hollywood Hills. Of course, there's no big Hollywood sign up there in the hills. And this was used by the Chamber of Commerce in Los Angeles back then to lure small farmers to Los Angeles, and they, they, in their literature, they talk about how Los Angeles has an ample and unfailing water supply. Without water, there's no farms. Where did Los Angeles have water by 1929 other than the L.A. River? Well, um, we actually had quite a bit of underground water. We had aquifers that were tapped in various ways. We had streams, rivers that were tapped for uh, agriculture. And um, beginning in 1913, we had the Los Angeles Aqueduct, which was a huge engineering uh, project that brought uh, water from, from the Owens Valley up near Bishop to Los Angeles. And of course, that was very, very controversial. In your book, you point out that there's a 32-acre historic park not too far from Chinatown, which really harkens back to Los Angeles's agricultural beginnings. Yes, that is so true. The uh, It's sometimes called the cornfield. And the story behind that name is that it was, it was once... Um, a place where citrus was grown, a place where grapes were grown. It was an abundant farming area near the core of Los Angeles. It became a Southern Pacific uh, train depot, and then it was in use as a train depot for about 100 years. And corn seeds would fall off the trains as they came into the yard, and so corn would sprout up. And so this place became known as the corn depot. The the um, It became known as the cornfield, but it's also probably the spot where the first Spanish explorers um, stopped in Los Angeles and said, hey, this looks like a pretty uh, good place to settle where we could grow a lot of crops. And that was why they came back a couple of years later to start the mission. How was agriculture encroached upon in Los Angeles County over the decades? Where did suburbia start its progress there? Well, I, I sort of track it back 
to uh, the 1880s. Um, at this point, Los Angeles could be reached by train, and hundreds and thousands of people started coming to Los Angeles and buying up land in various land booms and buying small farms and homes. And so during this land boom in the 1880s, um, all these suburbs began to spring up, and it, the area started to look a little bit like the patchwork of communities we know today. And it spread throughout, of course, uh, the San Fernando Valley and the other surrounding valleys. But uh, as the book's illustrations and pictures point out, the area around Hollywood was rather richly agricultural, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was full of citrus orchards, in particular the lemons from Hollywood were especially famous. There were many, many flower farms in Hollywood, believe it or not, where sweet peas were grown and crystal chrysanthemums and roses and all kinds of other flowers. It was a very abundant farming area. Is there a relationship between the rise of the entertainment, the movie industry in Hollywood, and the loss of farmland? Well, I would say in a way there is. Um, as Los Angeles became more famous, um, more people moved here and uh, started buying up homes. And the pressure uh, of property values really is ultimately what pushed out agriculture. So um, especially after World War II, when you have GIs coming home from the war and coming to Los Angeles for the many new jobs and industry that were developing here, um, the land just got gobbled up for subdivisions and freeways and um, the other things that, that people came here for so very quickly that it was really during 1945 and 1960 when about 60% of the agriculture got pushed out. Interesting that farmers back in Los Angeles 100 years ago were also interested in agritourism. And there are some interesting uh, venues for uh, tourists to Southern California to visit, like an alligator farm and a lion farm. <laughs> yes, they call them the fantastic farms. So just as production agriculture was really on the rise in Los Angeles, so too was this movement where... Um, animal farms and exotic gardens were promoted to tourists and it was sort of the rise of the tourist the tourism industry that became so popular in southern california i would say ostrich farms were the most popular of these people just loved them they came from all over the country to ride ostriches and um, see them run races and pull carts and eat whole oranges, and there's just all kinds of amazing photos in local archives of people visiting these or these ostrich farms. Now, your role today as a, basically a sustainable ag advisor, farm advisor for urban farms, and there's a great picture that ends the book in the inside back cover, and I'm not sure what street that is or what area that is, but it's massive power lines, and beneath these massive rows of power lines has sprung up what looks to be a wonderful community garden. And I, I recall from my youth down there the streets such as Witsit uh, in North Hollywood and Van Nuys that were streets just like that, where they were barren mm -hmm. beneath these power lines. And it's great to see that it, it's being put to good use now. Yeah, and that particular photo that you see there is a community garden in Torrance, uh, which is a city in Los Angeles County, South Bay. And my co-author, uh, Judy Gerber, lives in Torrance, and this is a photo that she took. And yes, Los Angeles County and all our cities have an amazing history dating back to the 1970s of community gardens and school gardens and urban agriculture and small 
urban farms. And I think we're seeing that around the state and around the country as well right now. It's something that's really popular and really resonates with people. So farms appeared in Southern California, in Los Angeles. They shrunk. Are they growing again, but just on a smaller scale? Yeah, I would say that um, the current urban farming movement um, is very small scale. Um, it, you know, most urban farms are on maybe a small size city lot, up to maybe three acres in size. It's not the easiest thing to gain access to a plot of vacant land in the city, so there's not um, all that many of them. But a UCLA study a couple years ago did document about 1,200 urban agriculture sites in Los Angeles County, which includes school gardens, community gardens, and urban farms. So um, they're there. They uh, appear to be somewhat on the rise. And I just really think they play into people's interest in eating fresh food um, and knowing where their food comes from. Um, And I think it's something that will continue to be popular in the coming years. There's no question that the precautionary tales that you write about that happened to Los Angeles over the last 50 to 100 years is currently happening in other areas of the state. And it's a good primer about the struggle between agriculture and and growth. It's called From Cows to Concrete, The Rise and Fall of Farming in Los Angeles by Rachel Searles and Judith Gerber. And Rachel, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.